Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, editor Christopher Wagner. My brother Chris and I moved to New York City in the mid-90s. The rent for our 600-square-foot Hell's Kitchen apartment was $1,200. I had $400 saved in a Quaker Oats can and a gig filing music reviews, but was well shy of my cut. Still, when I landed a gig at a coffee shop, Chris dissuaded me from taking it. Don't waste your time making coffee, he said, pledging to cover my rent. Get that job in journalism. Within three months, I was writing for Rolling Stone. It's just one instance where my bro got my back. Christopher, with incidentally an F, Wagner, was born in Waterloo, Iowa, and raised in suburban Chicago and Philadelphia. He graduated Marietta College with a major in broadcast journalism, a minor in political science, and an eye on Tom Brokaw's chair. Chris entered media in the early days of the digital revolution. His aptitude with early Macintosh computers and the fundamentals of reporting led him to video editing, where, as he tells it, he was able to tell stories to build worlds, really, with words, pictures, and sound. Chris and I lived together in Saratoga Springs, New York, after college, before moving to New York City, where we were roommates for another five or so years, which is right about the time when I met America's favorite neighbor, and we began talking about making a documentary. Is there a moment in your career or life when you looked around and you were like, I have arrived. I did it. This is what I came for. You know, when we moved to New York City, my goal was to be the best of the best and the best, right? And that was either LA or New York. And New York was the place. I always thought that cutting the year in rock, right? Because we grew up in that era when it was really awesome. And I got to do that, right? I think it was 1999 or 2000. And it was so anti. With Matt Anderson, right? Anderson or Damier or all of them and Mark Doctorow and all those guys. Mm -hmm. And it was Snoop Dogg was the big interview. And he did the whole interview with an ounce of weed on his lap, which I had to frame out. But there's smoke in every shot. (laughs) Yes, I I recall. (laughs) To a certain degree, I... That was always this big goal. And then when when I did it, I was like, oh, this is kind of so anti. Like, it's not the big, awesome thing. Now, part of that was because at that point, MTV had already started to kind of slide out of that crazy, passionate music people making television. And we don't care what advertisers think. We're just making the craziest, funnest, coolest shit we can think of, as opposed to the marketing. It became corporatized, which I feel like I saw that happen with MTV. And I've seen that happen with ESPN. A bunch of crazy sporto people. They just want to make great sports television. And then Hey, Disney, now we're going to market it as part of our portfolio. And yeah, you crazy sports people can just kind of step to the side and we'll take over. Thanks. There's a line I remember from European history that goes, um, every tyrant puts on the robes of the tyrant he overthrew. You know what I mean? Like eventually every revolutionary becomes the norm. Some mornings I remember when I would get into, and, and you remember Sony, you know, those online edit rooms, which are a thing of the past now, now you can get that practically in your tablet. They were like the Star Trek Enterprise, right? Yeah. All yeah. those 
computer and different types of systems. And there were times where I'd be like, dude, I rock this shit, you know, it was like <laughs> flying at 747, right? Yeah. Like this is really complicated shit. And I'm one of a handful of people in the country that really know it and can do it really, really well. And not only that, it's allowing me to find this creativeness that I hadn't really explored younger outside of being in choir and maybe a little piano. I didn't get into drawing and painting, but television became kind of the place where I could explore it and realize, hey, I am kind of creative. And wow, I, I do have kind of an eye for design and I get how to tell a good story. Also, I think you went with me to go see Willie Nelson at Sony when he was doing a live by request or a yep, yep, yep. behind the music or whatever. And those were the kinds of awesome experiences like where I, it was like, no, we can show up five minutes before they start taping. Someone will walk us to our seats. Those are the awesome things. And not because it's like, oh, look at me, but more because like Willie Nelson, man, like this is a legend and a, somebody I respect and whose music I love. And I'm getting the opportunity purely because I'm doing what I love to do and people like it. And there are some things that have been just marketing and television and some things that I really cared about, like our documentary. I really cared about that. I really believed in it. And I love the stories that we told. When you think back like early life, what do you see? Like, what are your earliest pictures in your mind's eye? I don't really remember Iowa. We left there when I was three. I mean, I have some visions of it, but it's hard to tell if it was while we were there. I remember Grandma Bolster's house, which I think mm -hmm. was before we moved because I stayed with her a lot before you were born. Yeah. And there's that story of her cutting off her finger in the blender, making me mashed bananas. So that must've been in the pre three era. I don't, I don't know that story. I'd forgotten it. Did she ever get the pinky back or was it gone forever? No, just the tip of her middle finger, I think. Cause she was mashing up bananas and I guess trying to shove them down and stuck her finger in too far. Mm. That's, the, that's how the mm. story is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I have some brief snippets and then Maryland. I remember our neighborhood, our yard. I remember playing in the creek up the way. I remember the tree you mm. and I, the, the plum tree we used to climb in. We had that sandbox. It was always full of cat litter because <laughs> all the cat, every, it seemed like every cat in the neighborhood would go in there and use it for a, a bathroom. It's worth pausing on that uh, plum tree because for anybody who's seen Mr. Rogers and me, it is the actual photo and the actual logo, which um, as I recall, you made, but also that plum tree and that photo made me feel like at the time I was a thousand feet in the air, but the plum tree's like, I don't know, maybe an eight foot tree and we're like two feet up in the tree, <laughs> right? We're like three. No, and... it, was, it was bigger than that because it was taller yeah. than that. But yes, I get your point. Yeah. Describe Oak Park, Illinois, which it sounds like, like both of us, is really what we think of as formative. Oak Park, I just remember is, you know, we walked to school. There was a town center, so to speak, you know, the Zenders Pharmacy, mm -hmm. and there was an ice cream shop. And it was a place that felt, and granted, now this is 1977 to 81-ish. So part of it is time, right? And we were I was eight to 13 age range, but it was a neighborhood, you know, the kids on the block for the most part, granted, we had our two friends, Sean and Dusty across the street, who we did a ton of stuff with, but there was a cohesion on the block and there were a lot of kids and we would all play. I remember doing wiffle ball games and we'd all stand there and someone would do the national anthem. Yeah. Like it was with our hats on our hearts. <laughs> with, yeah, totally. But that was like, and then we'd play ball, you know, yeah. and it was just, we had that upstairs room that we shared. 
the colors and the wallpaper and we had planes hanging. That was where the divorce happened too, was in Oak Park. And that was probably, at least in my memory, the first time that there was any real trauma in our life. And some would argue that's not that bad, but your parents screaming and yelling at each other all the time and not clearly not getting along, that's trauma. At some point, kind of realizing that maybe that wasn't going to work out, that things were going to change. And then they did change and they changed pretty drastically. And it wasn't <laughs> like they were, they were friendly with one another. You know, there was, there was enmity on both parts and you and I were in the middle of that, right? We had to listen yeah. to this side and that side. And I mean, here you are 10, I'm 13, like just beginning to kind of, at least for me, I don't even think I was thinking about girls or boys and relationships quite at that point yet. Yeah. It was just like, you were not even there. How could you possibly comprehend the deep mess that a marriage and children and relationship are? Yeah. I still don't understand it. And I'm 20 yeah. years into one, you know? Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So we were close to our family in Iowa. We went to Iowa all the time. We'd meet Gail's family and everybody up on the lakes in Minnesota. That was all fun, right? I remember going and we would eat, get we'd get a thing of ice cream and we'd go sit in the sauna and then we'd all come tearing out and run off and jump yeah. off the dock. I mean, life was good, yeah. man. Especially when we were in the Midwest, I felt like we were way more connected to our extended family than I've ever been since, really, right? I mean, I remember spending a week or two in Iowa prior to the divorce. You know, we'd go to grandpa and the Wagners for a while, go hunting, go fishing, then maybe go to the Gales for a while, maybe meet some. I mean, it was just, it was a more regular thing. They came to our house a couple of times. Yeah, sure. And those were different worlds, right? You would go back to grandpa and grandma's house and that was what, a two bedroom house where five boys had grown up in the attic without yeah. heat. <laughs> there was one shower Eight, in ten, the whole place. 10 people total. Yeah. Two right. bedrooms in a basement. No one was starving. No one didn't have what they needed. They had everything that they needed. Maybe not as much of what they wanted, but, but I think that helps going forward because then you have a little different perspective on what is really necessary to be happy. And I saw a lot of joy around the table at night when they would sit and play poker for nickels, dimes, and quarters. The uncles, the aunts, everybody would sit down with their bag of coins and they'd play cards and they'd rib each other and joke with each other. And there was, I mean, what more is there, right? Yeah. They'd talk about what was going on in their lives. And that could be my memory. Maybe it was way more caustic and painful, but I don't remember it that way. I remember being like, this is great, right? Well, at least everybody was showing up. Everyone right. was there. I feel like people still played their roles as in, in any community, but to the sort of thread we're trying to get at, just being present with one another is a heck of a first step. I've always known that that had more resonance with you just because you were older and had more exposure to it. And it won't surprise you that I always felt outside of it. Do you know what I mean? But the cards, you know, a kid could never play. So that didn't help. I mean, I was, I loved animals, right? I was like the kid who liked had stuffed animals. And the last thing I wanted to do is shoot one or hook it through. Right. And there were stuffed animals hanging on the walls. <laughs> yeah, that's a, right, right, right. I didn't even know what you and meant. And the freezer but yeah. full of stuffed animals that were yeah. going to be eaten. <laughs> yeah. And so it always felt like I didn't belong. I did. I was too soft. I was too feminine. I was not strong enough. I, 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 I couldn't kill easily, <laughs> you know, but, um, in my mind's eye, I guess I've never said this to you, but it won't surprise you. 
I think of myself as a more effeminate man than I think of you. I think of you as more masculine. You do more manly things. You know what I mean? You played football, you played lacrosse, you know, you, you, you broke more things. And I mean that like it sounds. I mean, I was just like, oh, in my head with my feelings and my, you know, like my stuffed animals cleaning my room. It's a weird person to be in that world. You know what I mean? It never felt like it belonged. I think that's relevant to what's going on globally or nationally, you know, with the whole gender and gender affirmation questioning and all that. I think part of the problem and part of what creates an awful lot of trauma is that classic misogynistic take on the world and that you can't be a man unless you are doing these ding, 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 check off your list things. In our house, no one says man up or, you know, you throw like a girl. Right. And that doesn't serve anybody because why does anybody care? That's the, that's the, the weird part. Because when somebody lives in their full authenticity, fully integrated with who they are, absolutely living out loud, you know, like I am really myself. It makes anybody who isn't not necessarily intellectually, but in a somatic psychology sort of way, like in the body, in the experience, in the lived experience, it forces them to confront the ways in which they do not live with integrity. What happens if I manage through some of this stuff so that I can really be, not worry about my femininity in relation to my uh, masculinity, not worry about my introversion in relation to my extroversion in terms of expectations, not worrying about whether I'm in the top percentage of earners, but just earning what we need, all that stuff, right? That if I can get closer to a, a sense of integrity with myself, then others get permission. But I think it indicts, experientially indicts those who it, are bumping up against it. Guys in Georgia who are like, but wait, 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 we got to stop those people from voting. You know what I mean? It's like, it's all fear. It's all fear. It's all fear. Because I think everybody just, it's just a fight or flight. Like the system's pretty binary. This thing turns off when you see a gorilla running at you and the heart starts beating fast and suddenly you're not thinking rationally. You're just trying to survive. And I just can't emphasize enough how much I think that that's what culture is experiencing right now as we exit the pandemic. 70% of humans on earth have experienced trauma. So that's like numerically pretty good odds for at least a little bit of un, unmanaged stuff. Trauma begets trauma. Yes, that, yes, 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 yes. And, and healing begets healing, right? So when you get curious and you did this the whole time, I remember I'd be like, Jesus, we have to go. And you'd be talking to the Cracker Barrel lady, you know what I mean? And we, I'd be like, we got to shoot. But it's really sweet. And I think it's an interesting thing to notice because we've never talked about it in this way, that you're creating space. You know, and Viktor Frankl, who's a Holocaust um, survivor and a psychologist says, in the moment between something happening and us responding, there's a space. And in that space is our freedom, right? And so what you do by being curious with the Cracker Barrel lady is create some space to be free, right? So like, imagine if you do that everywhere you go, that's impact. What if we do a movie that 20,000, that airs 2000 times in America, that's impact that creates that space. That's why I feel galvanized to get back into the movement in the way that we think of what we did, which I think of as a movement to just ask questions, right? Yeah, I hear you. The experience with modeling the behavior that I always come back to is when I was 
president of the fraternity yeah. at some point. Yeah. I believed that if I continued to clean the bathroom, that by modeling that <laughs> behavior, eventually no luck. someone would be like, wow, you know, he cleans the bathroom all the time. Maybe I should be. It never happens. Yeah. I keep <laughs> thinking just, that's going to happen uh, with the dishwasher. <laughs> There's going to be things for all of us probably that we're going to be like, gosh, I wish I had gone to Mount Everest or I wish I had maybe those kinds of things or I wish I hadn't been so mean to XYZ person or maybe there's some horrible thing that you did growing up and you just really, you take that to your grave. But I don't really want to be like, oh, I wish I had spent more time asking, learning about people and the trees in my backyard and why my kid is behaving the way they're behaving it stands to reason that the elder sibling would need to be more curious because you had to solve so many more problems than a secondary or tertiary sibling, right? But not every elder sibling would default to curiosity, right? I mean, some of them would just bang into, and it, sometimes it felt like you were banging into the object in order to figure out what it was and to move it. But I wonder, like, you ever think about that? It's hard to kind of self-analyze yeah, of in that way, but I think a lot of that came at the beach, in the summer mm -hmm. and yes, in college, as I began to feel more comfortable and confident about being who I was and what I wanted to be. And I'm not by any means saying that I had that figured out at in college. I'm saying, I think I started to become more comfortable with just trying to be who I am. A, you become more knowledgeable. B, you get to do more things and you're starting to experience life. You're out on your own, right? You solve some problems on your own, but also, I think you have people around you that are hopefully that are modeling, trying to be their authentic selves. And you see that and you see that, oh, that's working for them. Right. And why can't it work for me? So who did you see that was doing that? It was just kind of the behavior around the university? And you're like, huh. I think in general, my school, Marietta College, was a good experience in that respect. And there were a lot of professors, not that I necessarily even took that were good models of that. They you were, loved your swimming professor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I failed swimming. That's what Ben's talking about, everyone, if you really want to know. I failed. I was fifth in the state in Illinois in the backstroke <laughs> at age 14, and I failed swimming in college. Oh, that's funny. Um, I didn't know that part. Why? Just go ahead, as long as you're going to tell the story. Because you didn't want to get because up. Because <laughs> I, no, no, no. Yes, it was fresh first semester, freshman year. I'm playing football. So I have practices yeah. every afternoon and sometimes in the evenings and I scheduled, no one helped me. I scheduled yeah. an eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock class. <laughs> You're like, it's supposed to resemble high school, right? <laughs> exactly. The eight o'clock class was swimming uh, and it wasn't on camp. You had to go a little bit off campus to get to the, the pool. So the first day she's like, everybody swim 10 laps or 20 laps or whatever. And she timed it. And I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm out of there in like 10 minutes. So then the next class, she's like, okay, based on your times for your 20 lap test, here's what your goals are for the semester. And mine uh, right. was like, by the third week, I was swimming for an hour straight to try and meet the goals that she had set for me based on how fast I had swam. and so. I was consistently late to my next class. It was just, and, yeah, and it was eight o'clock in the morning. So I stopped going. I just gave up on it. And again, not knowing about college, it was also a good learning experience, you know? 
I never scheduled that many classes. Bing, 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 bing. But my thought was then I'd at least have an hour before football practice to kind of gather myself. And that, you know, that was kind of kicking my ass at the time. Yeah. Football was tough. Did you want that? Like at a certain point in high school, you're like, this is me. And then you didn't at some point. Do you know what I mean? I think sports was what connected hard work and reward for me in a way that school never did, probably because I never did the super hard work. Mm, you mean you could see the correlation between effort and outcome? Oh, yeah. Well, you remember, like football, I didn't start playing until junior year in high school. I worked hard. I learned as much as I could. And then I was at the beach all summer. And the guys I was living with, they were athletes. And so we spent a lot of time at the gym, three, four days a week. And I got really strong all summer, got in pretty good shape. And I got back and coach saw that they played the whole senior year as a starter. That was a place where I was like, Oh, look, I decided I wanted this. I did the work. I worked hard and I got it. And so when I got to college, yes, I wanted to play Marietta. My freshman year had not had a winning season in 16 years. It was D three. It's not like I'm ever going pro. I knew that, but I still loved it. And I wanted to play if I could. I played the entire fourth quarter of my first college football game for the varsity because we were winning like 52 to 10. It was amazing. And then that coach left <laughs> and the guy that took over was a knucklehead who thought we were like Alabama. And <laughs> I'm like, dude, I'm 195 pounds soaking wet, maybe 200 on a good day. And I'm one of the bigger kids on our team. We're division three in central Ohio no, no one here is going anywhere with football. This isn't going to be my profession. So that's when I kind of bailed. We had a good little TV station. We started televising basketball. We had this old ambulance that had been converted into like a remote truck. Oh, we run fun. three cameras through it. And we would televise town hall meetings, school board meetings, a couple spelling bees, elections my freshman year. You know, we had our little local access cable channel. But I was always directing. <laughs> The one time I did a basketball game on camera, uh, I did it with my friend, Jeff. He was the play-by-play -play and I was the color. And suffice it to say that I probably, every third word out of my mouth was definitely. To the point that when I walked in the dorm after the game that night, Everybody I ran into was like, dude, definitely. I was going to say, it was dude. Chris, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Definitely, Jeff. Definitely. And thus ended I, my career in sports broadcasting. Exactly. <laughs> totally. How did editing begin? How did Avid come around? I know you were early there. Avid, yeah, that was Cleveland. I, I just happened to graduate college when the beginning of the transition from a linear world, right? Your videotape to a, what we have now, which is a nonlinear, purely digital right. world. You don't shoot tape anymore. You yeah. shoot cards and you have files. I got my degree in journalism and, and a minor in political science. I thought I wanted to do news, man. I, I wanted to be Tom Brokaw. Like that guy was the shit. Even after all the um, dude, definitely. Yeah. But the difference is, and that's why I make the distinction is, while I was doing the news, I was reading teleprompter. It was copy yeah, yeah, that I yeah. had written. You weren't improvising. You'd already done the organization of the thoughts. And all you had to do was deliver those thoughts. Editing came after college. I got my first job in Cleveland, classic worldwide productions. And 
I was a grunt, you know, I was working the four to midnight shift doing duplication. Back then, again, there weren't, you didn't just send out a file. If you wanted to share an advertisement, you sent them a VHS tape in the mail, you know, and we did hundreds of thousands of, it's it's crazy, right? And every television show, most shows were distributed by sending a tape to a station and some guy would get the tape, open the tape, and at the appropriate time, put the tape in and hit play. Yeah. And you would get to watch that show. I remember the first shoot where I got the magic of television. We were doing a commercial for Windows, right? And it was fully 100% inside the soundstage. Fake psych of a house, fake window, fake rain, lightning. And I was the squeegee guy. So after (laughs) I was the squeegee and the wind guy. So after every take, I would get the squeegee, go to the window and be like, get every little drop off. And I'm in the studio going like, this is how the hell is this going to, you know, but that was where I saw, wow, this is what we shot. Look at how they changed it, how they edited it. And then the graphics guys did their work. And I would believe 110% that that is a window in a house. And I'm looking out into somebody's yard yeah. and there's a real storm happening out there. And That's it was cool. one of those yeah. interesting yeah. start to finish, like, oh my gosh, I get this. And the guys I made friends with there were editors. I kind of was like, wow, this is kind of like being the editor of the paper, except you're not doing just print it's like this is the person everything that goes into this comes through the editor they're your choices for a large part a b i yes i'm technically savvy i liked that i was into it and at the time that whole world required way more technical savvy than it does now right you know you didn't just plug your mac in and open up final cut or premiere and go to town there was a lot more to it a lot more to it and i could do that i could do the technical, and I could also do the creative, thoughtful part of it. Abbott happened to come to the studio 1991, and we had one of the first ones. And this was revolutionary, right? Because it was Microsoft Word for sound and video, as opposed to a typewriter, which is what classic examples of television prior to that point were. It was a typewriter. If you made a mistake, you had to go back to that spot and start again. Whereas... Abbott and the nonlinear editing changed television and media in a way that the word processor changed print. Same exact huge, massive jump. And I just happened again to be at a place that had that. And I was friends with Bill Durande, who had been the big dude, the senior editor at Cleveland. He moved to LA right after I moved to New York. He became huge out in LA, came to New York, to do the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he and I did the show together. I worked 112 hours that week. Painful, but awesome, right? That was like, look, he went out and did that thing. I went out and did this thing. I've gotten to the point where we're doing this great thing. You know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to me was a pretty big deal. You know, I'm sure there's Mm -hmm. bigger things out there, but I think it was the year George Harrison got in. Good, fun stuff. He was the dude at the place in Cleveland. And I started packing the ad. He was doing a show called Talking with David Frost, which was on PBS. And they would go all over the world, right? Yeah. And interview John Major and uh, the British Prime Minister. I mean, everybody. And they would travel this machine. And I started packing it up and for shipment. And then when it would come back before everybody got back, I'd put it all back together uh, and get things prepped right. for him. So I started learning about it from the ground yeah. up, not really understanding yeah. what I was learning. That's interesting. And then yeah. jump to couple years into Cleveland, I'm like, eh, relationship is over or seeming over. It took three more years to fully die out, but <laughs> that happens. 
Well, I moved to Cleveland for two reasons, if we're honest. One, the woman I was dating. And two, I had gotten some good advice to somebody who said, why go to one of the top five markets and starve? You can get the same experience level in one of the top 20 markets and live a little better. And it was good advice. And Cleveland was number 12 market. What? You're shaking your head. Cleveland was the well, I'm shaking my market. head because that's not because I didn't do that, right? Like, I mean, I know that I lived in Saratoga with you for a while, but basically that was like a year after you school. You jumped right then, to New York. Yeah. And then boom, I'm standing on the corner of 1856, like yeah. terrified. And you're like, I remember the, mo- the moment you and me and John, John Luther uh, and Eric Gilman, who I think all those guys helped us move and we're standing there. And I remember thinking in front of the health food store, I am going to die here. This is all too fast and too loud, and I will never be able to do it or keep up. And you did. By the skin of my teeth. But that was also part of the challenge, right? And I also don't think that when we moved to New York, I certainly didn't understand the beauty and value of living in New York City when we moved there. I moved there because it was the place where I was going to get the experiences that I wanted to have. And I was going to get to work for MTB and cut the year and rock and do all that kind of big wig stuff, not realizing that there was so much more to that town than I really understood. It's interesting you say that because one of the things I talk about a lot here is how much more civically connected I feel. And I mean that in terms of both elected officials, but also just the fabric of what constitutes a society, right? You know, the postman, I know his name. I never knew the postman's name in New York. In my sense is you had cultivated a different kind of community on the Upper West Side. Like there was a kind of familiarity where you'd bump into people and wave at them. I guess I got a little bad at the end, but it never felt like my place. I always felt like I was in the wrong place. You can be there and not be riding around in a limo, not have to be at that top level and still enjoy it to a certain degree. Now, I left there because that was becoming less and less achievable for us. And I wasn't willing to make the sacrifices right. that were going to be necessary to buy another a bedroom, basically. Right. Yeah. yeah. That would have meant, and, and my priorities had changed. My priorities had changed from being the king shit to like, I just want to make enough money so that I can spend as much time with my kids and my family as possible. Yeah. I don't give a crap about making, you know, the best TV show ever anymore, or how big a job I'm working on, or, you know, yeah. yes, it would be nice to work with somebody like Martin Scorsese or Robert De Niro for sure. But my life is not going to be determined by whether or not I do that. My life is going to be determined more about these incredible young people that I'm trying to help find a way to be good people in the world. And so while I still did work a ton one of the great things about being an editor is I wasn't traveling all over the world shooting. I was in the same room every day and you could find me if you needed me. And if I needed to leave, I could leave most of the time. If something wasn't airing that night, the avid thing kind of opened the door to the next step. I had started interviewing in New York city. I met Steve Rosenbaum who had this small company based in Saratoga that was doing what seemed like way more news, but not like, the bought and sold news is somewhere between current affair and 60 minutes, I think. And I, I think Steve would probably have described it that way. Probably became more current affair <laughs> the longer yeah. we did it. And we did some great documentaries like that cop suicide doc. We won yeah. awards for the ER doc that we did. We won awards for, I mean, yeah, those were, were Emmys. Real yeah. hard hitting, you know, we were the 
first people to get cameras in the Kings County ER and spend weeks there shooting the night shift. The interesting thing about Steve is he also seemed to understand the intersection of technology and storytelling at a time when few did and in a way that few did. Totally. And I think part of that is his, his curiosity because he's still doing it. Agree with you 100%. He was and still is always very curious and did understand the change. We actually did a business plan for a 24-hour viewers news network. And this was in 1993 or 94. His idea at the time was 24 hours of news supplied by the guy down the street and the guy across the country, the little guy at the podunk shop in Chicago, whatever. That and you guys one. solved the problem of not having iPhones because this is 20 years prior, right? So you would send the cameras and then you would produce an edit, right? So like, that's what you were the platform, but the consumer was the driver of the story. We were the enablers. You I were think. the storyteller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like civic amplification, actually. It's crazy ahead of its time. And that 100%. is for the, And it was an MTV news show. So that's how I, I mean, it's funny because I'd never... You never said to me, you know, you should try and get a job at MTV News. I don't know why it took Bruce being like, hey, they're hiring. Like it never dawned on me that you were one degree away from that. Do you know what I mean? I'm not joking. I mean, it seems really obvious. Really? Well, Chris, had a, Chris was cutting there. Well, yeah, we didn't I mean, see each other that much either. I was those first yeah, year brutal. or two in the lot. city, man. Remember, because I was working not only for BNN, but I was working at NBC on the weekends and, and we were doing Unfiltered. That's the whole reason we moved to the city. What are your strongest memories of making Mr. Rogers and me together? Which I realized recently researching for this 10th anniversary, we really did the bulk of it in the summer of 2006 and the spring of 2007, and then edited it roughly until 2009 and then submitted it, blah, blah, blah. But the bulk of that field work was 2006. What are your sort of big picture memories of that? That it was a lot of editing, long, a lot of stuff to go through. And it was hard to get headway, meaning long blocks of time when I could work on it. Because with long form, in my experience, it's not like you can do two hours here, two hours there, four hours here. It makes it, it takes an hour just to get yourself back into the headspace of, okay, this long segment that I'm trying to finagle. And also, I think it's different when you care about it in a different way, when you're doing it not for somebody else, right? And the decisions are all yours. But the the things I remember the most are the traveling for shoes. Yeah. Being on the bridge out in Pittsburgh, going to Bo's place in North Carolina, and getting to meet those kind of people. And not that I have massive regrets, but one of the reasons I got into television was to do that kind of stuff. I chose editing, kind of knowing that it would put me in a room often by myself or with one other person rather than being on the production side and getting to go fly all over the place and do interviews and meet new people and shoot here and shoot there. I kind of wish I'd done more of that. So that was kind of fun. And being able to hang out and travel with you, because at that point I had kids and we didn't live together anymore. And that was harder to do. And also, how could you not want to talk about Brett? Like when you go to talk to people, how could they not want to talk about them? It's, it's all good. There's no. Yeah. It's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a positive conversation. Hanging out like with Bo was really pretty cool. Uh, meeting Linda Ellerby was really pretty cool. Yeah, she was meeting lovely. Mark. I, I mean, I remember, uh, and it's, it's interesting that this comes up because Arthur just 
yeah. ended, right? Last, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark Brown decided, and obviously he's probably what seventy five now, eighty. Yeah. But what a great, nice, incredible person who let us into his yeah. beautiful yeah. building. And then the lights were too hot, right? We couldn't break down, and, and he's like, "Oh yeah. yeah, don't worry about it. Let yourselves out." And he left to go right. to dinner with his family. Yeah. And here we are, and yeah. this guy who we've yeah. met for an hour three hours at that point in his beautiful downtown apartment. And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just let yourselves out. That yeah. that's pretty cool. And that's the kind of world that I think Fred helped create. Yeah, that's right. I agree. It was neat to be a part of that. And everybody welcomed us, you know, and Linda Ellerby arguably at the time was pretty damn busy person. So was Mark Brown, all of them. They, certainly they Tim Russer was. Yeah. Or Susan Stamberg, you know, Susan Stamberg. That was so nice. What an amazing, oh my gosh, yeah. amazing woman. I mean, we're such NPR fans. I remember walking in that lobby with you and seeing like their mission written on the wall and just being like, oh man, we're at NPR. I love NPR. And then you're like, oh man, I'm in a studio with Susan Stanberg. I love Susan Stanberg. You know, there was some real fan, yes. like public broadcasting um, fanboy stuff happening. A hundred percent. Here I am meeting the voice that I've been listening to for yeah. quite some time. Russert was interesting. And I remember... You were really nervous and Super rightly nervous. so, right? Yeah. Not to say that I wasn't, but in a different way. Cause I'm, I was behind the camera. I'm not the one trying to get people to share yeah. with me. You were trying yeah. to get people to share with you. You were really nervous. And he was, once he realized we weren't really there to get him to shill about his book. Yeah. That we wanted him to talk about something that he cared about. And that was his relationship with Mr. Rogers and, and the impact. And he just went off. And I remember the assistant kept coming and bugging like, we got to go, we got to go. And he just kept talking, oh, this, which yeah, is really yeah. a neat thing. How does it manifest in your life at all? I definitely hear myself saying that that which is mentionable is manageable line a lot to my kids. Yeah. Because darkness relies on silence. And mm. I don't mean silence like sitting and being silent with yourself. I mean, silence is in not talking about things. Racism relies on silence. Putin's invasion relies on silence. Bullies rely on silence. Not speaking up, not raising your voice, uh, raising your hand, that kind of thing. On your trauma theme, trauma is continued in silence. Right. You can't break the cycle if you can't talk about it. And right. you can't bring it out in the open. You, there's just not even a snowball's chance because... If you can't talk about it, how are you going to ever work through it? And that doesn't mean just by talking about it, problems are going to be solved. Mm -hmm. So how can you address any trauma if you don't acknowledge that you have trauma and find out that when you start talking about it, oh, and maybe that goes to my curiosity and my asking people, because when people talk to me and tell me about them, I can relate to it and go, yeah, see, other people feel the same way. Sometime deep in the throes of my parents' noisy divorce, I hid away from one of their rafter-shaking arguments in the basement of our Oak Park, Illinois home. I buried my face deep in a pile of winter coats and wept. Chris found me there downstairs, wrapped his arms around me and whispered, it's gonna be okay. My whole life, whenever an assignment went sideways or a relationship soured, when a boss yelled or a story broke, Chris was always there to say, it's going to be okay. In the space between the question and the answer, in curiosity and commitment to mentioning the unmentionable, we can all remind each other in tiny gestures every day 
It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Friends and Neighbors is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com and please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. And finally, today is Tuesday, March 8th, International Women's Day and our mother's birthday. Chris and I wouldn't be the storytellers we are without her, and there would be no Mr. Rogers and me without her. Well, there'd be no us without her. So thanks, Mom, and happy birthday.